Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we'll be diving deep into the world of cybernetics with academic, author and board game inventor, Ellen Broad. But first, our wrap of the latest tech news with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director, Dan Stinton. Hello, everyone. Burning Platforms, here we are. I was going to take Packer's privilege today and kick off with a bit of a discussion, which I'm really interested in, a debate that's playing out in India. Amy Denmead, who is our great collaborator, sends us through a heap of articles to keep us in track with what's going on every every other day. And she sent through originally one that just had the headline, Amazon internet giants seek changes to India's proposed new IT rules. And, you know, the my natural instinct was, of course they would. This was a story out of TechCrunch. Um, India last month proposed a number of changes to the IT rules, including creation of an appeals panel with veto power to reverse content moderation decisions of social media forms. And of course, the big platforms, Apple, Meta, Google, Amazon, Twitter, all of them say that doesn't work. We want self-regulation. This debate is played out everywhere. And in, in my, my normal corner is, you bastards, government should have a right to determine what's acceptable in their jurisdictions until Amy sent through another article from the Lowy Institute from the Interpreter website, which was going deeper into the, the background of these laws, which are known as the Internet Technology Rules, where it's all framed us as protecting into Indian citizens from big techs incursion of their privacy but the other part of it is there are widespread concerns that this is actually being used to usher in a new era of censorship then amy sent through another set of articles about what's going on in indonesia very similar style laws where human rights organizations are raising real concerns that government is using the regulation of social media to impinge free speech and really shut down dissent. So it's really got me, I I love debates which get me challenging my own assumptions and my own natural inclinations, which is a pro-regulation inclination. And it just strikes me that binary between government regulation and platform total self-regulation is probably part of the problem. So I don't know what you guys think, but it strikes me that it's a false binary, maybe. I don't know where you'd sit, Lizzie, but I think we're probably at different ends of it um, instinctively. But let me know what you reckon. Yeah, I heard um, Anoush Samaridi, who used to host a podcast about tech and everyday life, I suppose, um, talk about how Americans tend to trust companies more than governments and Europeans tend to trust governments more than companies, which I thought was a neat little summation. And then the question is, you know, where does India sit? And uh, I think the slide towards authoritarianism in India over the last few years has been really depressing. Um, I did recently go on the equivalent of India's Sky News, I think I'd probably describe it to have a debate about the regulation of big tech. And I think they picked me because they saw me as a critic of big tech platforms and the unbridled power in which they shape our democracy. But of course, in an Indian context, that kind of argument is then used to justify state censorship. And 
Uh, so I think they were a bit surprised when that was my position <laughs> when I put it to them. One of the officials from the Modi government who was on the debate basically mistook me for an American and said, how dare you come and tell Indians about democracy when your democracy is in such a shambles, which is sort of an interesting observation, but I didn't have time to correct him on that. But, you know, there's probably an argument that Australian democracy could be a bit better as well, uh, even if we're not as far down as the uh, American path. And I think one of the things that became clear to me in that debate is that, you know, countries don't like having American companies come in and impose their, their mode of doing business without reference to the local context in the way that lots of big tech platforms have done. And it creates the mandate for re uh, regulating them in a pretty awful way uh, and justifying authoritarianism. And I think one of the things that's clear to me is that where you sit on that spectrum has got to be um, context specific uh, and we've you know maybe even concepts as as simplistic as freedom of speech don't really get to the nub of arguments in specific states uh, and you, you shouldn't make assumptions about this stuff and you do have to think about these things in the context of local democracy the interests of political powers that be in implementing really regulatory reform and and you know i don't think we can ever really trust platforms to do the right thing but i think their opposition to these kinds of laws is it doesn't mean it ought to be rejected outright i think there's some merit to it even if i think they've got their own interests at stake I would like to see more bottom-up alternatives to big tech platforms and obviously um, government-run equivalents. And that would be where my position is, looking at how we can empower people online rather than governments or companies. But that's a, you know, that's a big challenge, even in liberal democracies that don't face as much censorship as, as somewhere like India. Mm. Dan, where would you rate yourself on the spectrum? What about you? Where would you go? I, I was right in the middle just because I think, well, I probably echo the, the feelings of both you, Peter, and you, Lizzie, in that, you know, on the one hand, I would rather there be some control over or, or the, the democratically elected governments should be able to determine to some extent how these platforms operate. But on the other hand, you can see how easily the interventions like this could be abused as they are being in India. I mean, the thing that strikes me is if you think about putting this in the Australian context, probably the, the best example of where this goes wrong, where, where the lack of government intervention goes wrong, is if you think about the pandemic and the fact that a very material proportion of the population thinks that the vaccines are harmful or will kill you or worse, as some Bill Gates plot. I think probably everyone knows at least one person which has gone down that rabbit hole. And that's, I think, a direct result of the fact that there's been a huge amount of misinformation and disinformation, which is proliferated on these platforms. And as we talked about a lot on this show, it's, it's largely because they prioritise engagement above all else. And therefore, the more controversial the content, the more engaging it is, and therefore, the more people engage with it. And so therefore, I think I would, I think they, the platforms demonstrated during the pandemic that they didn't take their responsibilities seriously in taking down this content. They did some efforts, but not enough. But on the other hand, I would never want to have the government coming in and saying, well, that content is wrong, you need to take it off your platform. So where do you sit? And if I apply this to the Guardian context, I mean, just to, to give it a to sort of bring this to life, if you like. I mean, if the government was able to say to us that we think that's disinformation on anything that we wrote, you need to take that down, that would obviously be a massive overstep. The only remedy I can think of here, and it's an imperfect one, but I wonder if it's something along the lines of there needs to be some kind of government intervention which mandates reasonable steps from these platforms in order to take down content which is misinformation or disinformation to prevent this stuff from going viral. Well, in a way, that's what the eSafety Commissioner does, not in terms of 
disinformation. But you, you can see that, there, that we do have a principle of a government-sanctioned intervention on the free um, self-regulation of platforms already. Yeah, and it, and it, but look, it needs to go further, in my view. I mean, it's just not it's not been effective enough yet. Maybe, maybe we'll get there, but I think that that feels like a better way to approach this is to just make, make give them a, an obligation to take their responsibilities seriously, which clearly they don't, particularly when it comes to Facebook or, or Meta. And the other thing I'd like to see is is more transparency, because I think again, the big problem we've got is that you don't really know. Uh, we don't really know how big the problem is and how much misinformation, disinformation is going viral out there because the platforms don't share that with us, uh, particularly mm. Meta. So. I think those two things are probably the best remedy I can think of, but it's imperfect. So yeah, I'm in the middle. I'm I'm a bit tortured by this one. You are a man that spends a lot of time on the fence. I know. Ellen, where would you <laughs> sit yourself on the spectrum? I, I really liked the comment Dan made about obviously there's a point to be made around content moderation, but what is underpinning this is the way platforms are designed to maximize engagement as much as possible, which means that speed and scale really drive the proliferation of content, whatever it is. And I would sit in a completely different place on that spectrum, depending what kind of content we're talking about. So, you know, if we're talking about child sex exploitation material, I'd be like, I want government intervention. I'd be right on the government side because I think we've seen time and time again how challenging this is and how difficult it is to be left to platform self-regulation. But then again, if we're talking about political dissent, I'm well over on platform self-regulation. And I think one of the challenges that we have around the way we talk about internet infrastructure is everything gets lumped into the same bucket. We try and think of all data as the same data, irrespective of context. And similarly with content, we talk about content moderation as though the challenge that we have is finding the right needle in a haystack and like just keep sifting through the haystack and find the bit of the kinds of content that we care about instead of thinking about the infrastructure, the conditions, the design decisions that make our discussion around content moderation so contested and hard to get to the bottom of. Because I think as long as we kind of ignore the broader way platforms are designed and instead just focus on types of content we do and do not want censored, we're, we're kind of like missing the elephant in the room. Right point. It's for discussion for another day, but it got me thinking about this book that Jamie Suskins just put out, The Digital Republic, which really does situate internet governance in that idea of spectrum. So, of course, we don't want corporate power, but of course, we want government austerity as well in the way that it impinges on the rights of individual. And the missing piece is actually humans in the conversation to give ongoing feedback and rather than setting absolutes to create contextualised feedback to these really thorny issues that are playing out all the time. Lizzie, you have bowled up the vexed issue of Amazon's home security system. Do you want to talk to us about what's going on there? Yeah, I'd be really interested to know if anyone has a ring. Um, I certainly don't, or some other kind of digital assistant. Um, I've always been a bit sceptical of these things, but I also understand why people see them as convenient or whatever it is. But, you know, I think as time goes on, it becomes clearer and clearer that there are real concerns uh, around privacy or the misuse of information, I suppose is how I'd put it, that's collected by these devices. So it turns out that Amazon has been sharing video footage from rings the doorbell that has inbuilt cameras on at least 11 occasions they've been sharing it with police without the permission of owners over the last year and 
Amazon says in its defence, the reason it does that is either they were served with a warrant by a police force or there is a policy that they have in place where if there are emergency circumstances that involve imminent danger of death or serious physical harm, then they will share that footage. And I think that is uh, a bit troubling, um, partly because I'm interested to see what Dan thinks about this, because I think a purpose limitation on the use of information in this context doesn't really cut it because the warrant process circumvents this in some ways and yeah it's a limitation of the purpose limitation I suppose in a a clear example so what I didn't know this either but what Amazon does do is that it used to allow police to access customer footage that was pertinent to an investigation without a warrant as I understand it but it changed its policy last year and it now has agreements with over 2,000 police departments in the United States and essentially what they do then is they post a request for assistance on Ring's neighbor neighbors app, which I don't have, but I don't know about. Maybe if someone does, they can they can talk about it. Uh, and essentially, what that app does is it allows people to share footage from their Ring and communicate about it within their local area. So, in its essence, what Amazon then does is fill, sends out that request to people in the area for which the police are seeking footage, and then allows them to share it with consent. And it will then essentially put them in contact with the with the customer to do so. I didn't know this either, but the doorbells can actually be activated. The camera can be activated when there's movement up to 30 feet away, which is quite some distance, uh, and it can capture audio as well. My understanding is it's not possible to tinker with those specs. So your your ring is doing that whether you like it or not, which then creates, of course, the capacity to share that with police. To my mind, this sort of is like the, you know, neighbours twitching the curtains. It's like the next level up of of surveillance like we're constantly surveilled we're now all surveilling each other but it does also strike me that even if you want one of these devices police know people have them and then can go after content shall we say that might be generated from these devices for use in in investigations so even if you want to use it and you don't want to share it with police you may not have a choice because you happen to be in the place of interest to them or have material that they might wish to use in an investigation and I wonder whether that does change people's thoughts about using these devices Mm. whether they can be trusted but also whether we are okay with this scaling up of capability on the part of police forces which has come about as a result of these digital assistants. Yeah, Dan, are you a are you a home organizer? Surely it's a good way of making sure everyone's safe while you're running the largest media empire in the progressive world. <laughs> uh, that's a very generous description, uh, Peter. Uh, look, and as the resident tech pro, as you always bloody describe me as, it's going to disappoint you to know I don't have one of these devices. I do have a smart speaker and have had right back from the beginning, but I, I've I genuinely brought that into the home largely for research purposes because it was a lot of the news brands around the world were starting Mm. to experiment with this and it's largely switched off and sitting on a shelf. But look, I think just picking up on Lizzie's point regarding purpose limitation, firstly, I agree. I mean, purpose limitations is useful for stopping the the data arms race or putting at least some guardrails around the data arms race that exists to power digital advertising, but it's insufficient here, clearly, right? Like it's not, the problem we've got is that more and more homes, I mean, I think it's pretty safe to assume that almost every home at some point in the near future is going to have either a smart doorbell or a smart speaker or some kind of cameras in the house that they're using for different purposes. Maybe not all, but I think an increasing proportion of us will. And the problem with, the particular problem I've got with this is that law enforcement has been able to access data via the tech platforms rather than via the individuals where the content is being collected. 
I think I think I'm comfortable with police being able to access this content via a warrant from the individuals, but I'm just never going to be comfortable with them being able to access it via a third party tech company, particularly one based. Uh, in the US. So I'm not sure the legal ramifications of that, Lizzie, perhaps you can school me on that, but I think that that feels like a reasonable use of it. But yeah, as an individual, I'd just be pretty concerned about effectively being used for these purposes. I mean, you can see why law enforcement want these capabilities. And I think there's been some other um, public, well-publicised cases in the US where they've accessed data from the Amazon Echo speakers to solve crime. You can see why it would make their job easier. But it's also pretty easy to see where this leads, right? And it becomes effectively a version of Big Brother in real life. So I, I'm, I'm concerned about it. I think it, it makes me not want to have them personally. It feels like there's a spectrum between Neighbourhood Watch and the Stasi and like back on human terms. And again, where do we sit in the middle of it? Like if the use of a technology is to stop violence against women and children, you say that sounds like a really useful way to use technology but then when every home is becoming a big data trap even if that is the objective it's hard to sort of line all that up Lizzie there well the other thing I suppose I'd just mention is I do think the desire for data minimization is useful in this context like there should be clear limits you should be able to limit how much your ring is activated or what constitutes activation and when it records and when it doesn't this is not something of course that Amazon has an interest in imposing on its products because it uses them for commercial purposes but it does also mean then you open up this trove of material for use by the surveillance state which is obviously problematic or not what was intended or perhaps not anticipated by users of the of the device so I think you know data minimization is an objective ought to be more commonly talked about, I think, um, discussed, potentially legislated, at least giving consumers some control back so, you know, they, they don't inadvertently become part of the surveillance state. I mean, I understand that warrants can be a sufficient threshold for some people to accept this as legitimate, but I guess I think it corrodes kind of public life when every house is now a potential side of surveillance. I mean, maybe I've just got to build a Faraday cage for my house and try and avoid that. But I, I think it does degrade a sense of community to some degree. Hey, Ellen, what is the value to Amazon in collecting so, all this information? So I think one of the things I think we really have to distinct, distinguish between Ring and other kinds of digital assistance is Ring is explicitly for surveillance. Like, it's not like your Alexa where people don't quite appreciate, like they purchase it to put on music for them or they purchase it to set a timer for the cake that they're baking. Whereas purchases of Ring are using it as a form of security for their house. So the surveillance is what they want. So Amazon is providing a product that has a surveillance capability within a long line of surveillance capabilities for people in their homes. So when, Lizzie, you were making the comments like, you know, I don't think people quite realise that it is taking footage and audio up to 30 metres from your house, I don't have one, but I can 100% say that people who are interested in Ring, the purchase of a Ring, that's the kinds of capabilities they want. They want the video of their house. They want the sound. And so Amazon collecting that data is just giving them the product that they want. And we could ask ourselves, like, should those products be possible? Like, should you be able to sell the next CCTV for residential homes. But I think we do have to distinguish the different types of digital assistance for different contexts because we could say, for example, Amazon should just not be collecting audio or visual data for any form of a digital assistant 
But I would almost actually say you want to start thinking about the context within which collection is appropriate to the delivery of that product and to what extent people desire or want that in the context of the use. Because I'm sure, like, again, not being a ring owner, but if you've bought a ring, you probably love the neighborhood watch like app that is like, there's been a crime in the area. Let me see if I have any foot, like that's your, that's kind of why you've got it is that neighborhood watch vibe. So I think what is kind of challenging about this is like, we are all a very particular type of user on this call. Like we don't, sounds like most of us don't really like home assistants, but there are people who I I know my in-laws have one for renovations because they live in a semi-recluded property. So they have one to monitor people attending the property particularly for renovations, because it's not on a busy street. And so they feel more secure. I think there are hybrid devices like this, though, like the Astro, which is seemingly kind of sunk without a trace. But do you, do you remember this Astro device? Mm. It was like a robot that you'd have in your house. And it was the ad was like, it's going to be your kid's best friend, but it's also going to check if someone comes into the house, <laughs> if they're not recognised by the facial recognition system as being part of the family. And I think the design of that was to essentially create a robot home assistant that did both of those things a robot just to be that is a great example though that of course it sank without a trace as a thing for getting stopping people coming to your house because if you're an intruder getting into a house and you're confronted by your kid's best friend robot dog that's not going to prevent you getting into the house whether you're on facial recognition or not whereas the ring the thing that people love about it from a police perspective is it will ping your phone if there is anyone outside your house that they don't recognize and you can immediately alert the police. Oh it's like God. a, yeah. like, which is, is bad. It is for digital their, Stasi, yeah. For like the uses, I'm kind of, I'm like, no wonder the dog just disappeared because mm. people are for better or worse are afraid of the things outside their house as well as once they're inside it. In the interest of agenda, let's just go broaden it out a bit to Dan's contribution, which is actually about the surveillance of kids Mm. on a whole bunch of popular apps. Yeah, surveillance is coming up. You can almost rename this this show The Surveillance Show, I think, uh, Peter, with how often we end up talking about it. Yeah, so this story that I'm going to talk about today is, I think it was covered by the ABC and by us, and it was a result of an audit that was carried out by an organisation called Children and Media Australia. They're a not-for-profit. And they commissioned the Privacy Research Centre at the University of California to audit the most popular apps that children use in Australia to determine whether there was any abuse or potential abuse going on. And the results weren't great. So they found that almost two thirds of those apps that were audited contained some kind of code which allowed for the collection and use of of children's data without the children's consent or, or probably more importantly, without their parents' consent. So I'll get to what was being done with that code in a second. But just in case anyone has young kids and knows of these. The apps we're talking about are, um, I've got to be honest, I don't know a lot of these, but Dr. Panda, Swimming Pool, Star Wars, Pinball 7, Animal Hair Saloon, Peppy Play in my town. I've, I've only heard of a couple of those. Lizzie, I suspect you're going to know. I reckon Animal Hair stuff. Saloon would be a, be a great. <laughs> my great town. Apps. So look, what, what these apps are, doing, apps are doing is they're collecting information on the children, the, the ones that are concerning at least. They're connect, collecting information on the children using the app, such as, you know, any information cleaned during the sign-up process, their location, their device ID. That's not that unusual. Um, but I guess the difference is we don't actually know what's being done with the data. And the concern here is that there's no way for consent to be granted for this in any way. And in a lot of cases, no way for people to opt out either. So that means that these IDs are being created on children. These children could be being placed into uh, some kind of profiling, which will carry through for the rest of their lives. And it's all happening in the shadows. 
And, and what's worse, what the, the audit found is that for a couple of them, there was not significant encryption in place, which meant that it would be relatively easy for third parties to access the data uh, for all kinds of ends. If Now, to be clear, there's no evidence of that occurring, but it's possible. And many of these apps are owned by overseas companies. So there's, there's really not a hell of a lot that we can do about it. So look, I just wanted to quickly say why this data would be valuable for advertisers. To be clear, it's not, it's not a hugely valuable advertising segment. Advertisers typically don't target children because they don't have any money. Uh, that's probably not a surprise. But you know, that there is a small segment of advertisers that might want to advertise games or toys or perhaps junk food sometimes. But what could happen is that some of these games could be packaging up and on selling it to advertisers for programmatic advertising. Again, without the, the kids or the parents' consent. And then that means that these kids could be targeted with inappropriate things, sexual images, uh, weight loss pills, uh, junk food advertising, wagering alcohol ads, those sort of things. Now, to be clear, there are ad standards that are supposed to restrict all this, and they're largely successful in traditional media where everything is out in the open. And there's also laws for broadcast media that restrict this. But as we'd always, uh, as is always the case online, there is the ability for all of this to happen in the shadows, which means that children could be targeted with inappropriate ads without anyone ever really knowing. It's just another example of privacy regulation being needed to make this stuff illegal. Although I've got to say that even with privacy regulation, I'm not sure how effective it's going to be again, because these companies are largely operating in the shadows and, and, and overseas. What's the value of a data set on a kid of collecting all that stuff? So, so in the world that I operate in, advertisers, a small group, as I mentioned of advertisers might be interested in, in, in uh, doing advertising specifically to children. So if you're a toy manufacturer, it's probably the most obvious example you want to reach kids that are interested in whatever toy you're selling. And so you might want to target kids. Um, so that, that will be the use of it. Again, it's not a hugely valuable segment. The, the bigger concern though here is that, well, there's two concerns. It's, it's the ability for that segment to then be abused with inappropriate advertising. And it's also the ability for potentially bad actors to re-profile um, those individuals and actually be able to determine who the actual individuals are and where they're located for, for you know, really nefarious purposes. So it's a, it's a really concerning uh, development, I think. I think most of these apps are probably doing it without even meaning to, without even realising they're doing it, but it's still happening on a pretty significant, significant scale. Surely, Lizzie, this is... There is a case here for just a blanket prohibition on collecting data for children. That's one option. I mean, the other option is, like you say, Dan, it's not clear that there's consent that's been appropriately given because children are legal minors. So I'm not, I'm not sure this is legal, but there is a question around what the remedy is likely to be. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think also current discussions around reform of the Privacy Act are really important to introduce a direct right of action for breaches of the Australian privacy principles, because that's potentially a misuse of information of the Australian privacy principles. But at the moment, you can make a complaint to the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, but they're a significantly underfunded uh, regulator that's got a lot on their plate. And, and you can't really do much beyond that. And I think there's a real role to play in introducing, for example, fines associated with breaches rather than just looking at damage, which is hard to articulate. Even this just conversation just passed shows how that's true or that it, or it may be quite remote harm um so you know a, a fine associated with the breach much in the same way that the fair work act has fines associated with breaches of, of workplace laws and you don't have to prove damage and then also empowering individuals to bring claims outside of the commission process i'd also like to see the office of the australian information commissioner be more like the accc as in 
given the capacity materially, but also, you know, legally to, to continuously go after these kinds of companies and then, you know, potentially prohibit do, dealing with them and things like that if they've, if they've accrued significant fines. So if they are remote or overseas, you know, you can then have a, a company that deals with them um, held responsible if, if they choose to do that. So then it encourages companies to vet apps that are being put on their store. I mean, there's two, two big companies there, but to... Um, make them potentially liable as well for this kind of misconduct rather than just a, a company that might be shadowy and located abroad. So I think there are some options like that, but involves, you know, scaling up our privacy laws, but also a privacy regulator. And, and the privacy regulator, just on that last point, Lizzie, they would have to be, I mean, these are fairly technical undertakings, right? You'd have to effectively have people in that regulator that were capable of um, going in and doing some fairly complex analysis to determine whether or not these apps were collecting this data and using it inappropriately. That's a whole bunch of engineers that they need to hire effectively. So it's a quite a different function for a regulator to undertake, and an important one, but something which would require some pretty significant resources. I did look at, though, the complaint about Google's collection of location information that was brought by the ACCC, and that was hugely technical because there were dates mm. and times and stuff associated with this, uh, what they alleged was inappropriate collection of location information. That's partly also because the ACCC can seek information from companies and say, tell us what you're doing here because we don't think it's legal and then they have to comply. So it also gives them um, powers to seek information like that to stop this kind of conduct. But I agree with you, it is it is technically sophisticated. I was quite surprised at how sophisticated that complaint was. But the ACCC is, you know, very well-resourced institution, a regulator. It's got a lot of gravitas, you know, government likes to support it. It, it issues fines, things like that. I think we'd like to see a privacy commission get close to that or move closer in that mm. direction. I'm going to break in because we've got to talk to Ellen and give her the stage. Is this a job for cybernetics? And before we get there, what the hell is cybernetics? So cybernetics in one sentence is the art and science of purposeful systems. You're looking at how self-learning systems, um, artificial intelligence being one great example, um, typically also self-guided missile systems, systems that are learning and moving on their own. Humans have also been the subject of study and how they interact with the dynamic context in which they sit. Um, so feedback loops, feedback as a term came out of cybernetics and gave rise to mechatronics, systems engineering, artificial intelligence. This idea that if you study the way information flows between systems, it tells you something about what your system is going to do. You start to be able to look at first order and second order effects, things like decay over time or change over time, uh, emergence of properties you didn't consider. So cybernetics is essentially a way of looking at engineering different kinds of technological systems, but where you're really placing them in the human environmental context in which they sit. So you're not just focused on creating the perfect machine, you're looking at the environment they sit within to help you understand whether you're building the machine you think you are and whether it's going to do what you think it's going to do. So what example of a cybernetic pro project? I'm still trying to hold on to it. 
So cybernetics is a term like artificial intelligence where you would break it down into the many specific things that it actually is. Um, so the thermostat is a classic example of a cybernetic system where uh, a, ther a thermostat has sensors sensing changes in the temperature and in, in the environment, and it makes adjustments um, based on the temperature of the room that it's in and the temperature that the heating system wants to get to. So it's very interested in how do you sense things in an external environment to recalibrate the thing that you're interested in. So we're really interested in, for example, if you're gonna build a diagnostic AI for eye disease, you have a beautifully lab built AI system that when you test it in a lab setting is great at detecting eye disease. That is actually a very different proposition to in real world settings, different infrastructure contexts. That diagnostic AI eye disease tool is not one thing. It requires computational infrastructure, electricity, straight Wi-Fi. You have to understand how people are reading diagnostic images. You have to understand how images of eyes are taken in order to help you understand over time if that thing does what you thought it would do, if it is actually good at diagnosing eye disease. So we kind of place systems in contexts and try and think about what they're going to do and what they're going to do over time. So cybernetics is a transdisciplinary area. And by that, I mean, it's brought to, it purposefully brought together. So in the 40s, 50s, 60s, this was bigger than AI. It was, there were art exhibitions dedicated to it. I saw you put in Westworld, Peter, sci-fi was completely blown away by cybernetics. Artificial intelligence explicitly came out of it, but it brought together what was very deliberate in its inception was it was a group of people that were not just engineers. It was famous anthropologists, Margaret Mead being a great example. It was famous neurologists and biologists and all of these different kinds of people came together under the umbrella of cybernetics, being very interested in problems of communication and control between systems. And then they kind of took that knowledge and created new things with it. So a lot of breakthroughs in neuroscience came out of discussions in cybernetics in the kind of 50s and 60s. So today there'll be some in cybernetics who are just interested in robotics, for example, because a lot of forms of robotics explicitly came out of cybernetics. So in the same way that you might be under the umbrella of AI, but you're actually a machine learning researcher. And so that's your bit. They'll just be interested in robotics. Others will be interested in humans and human systems. We are really interested in, as, as a school, interested in recreating that diversity of voices. So we're very purposefully not one group of people. We have anthropologists, computer scientists, theater makers, archeologists, physicists, me, law and arts background. Um, so recreating that transdisciplinary set of voices but to see if we can design AI differently. Like, does it give us a different way of building these systems given that they're not ever in a like lab context, they're never in a static place. And what are the political fault lines in the discipline? How does that play out in your world? So one of the really big fault, like political fault lines, I like that term in cybernetics, was this rupture uh, between those, and it's, it's an ideology, not an ideology isn't the right word, but a way of seeing the world. There are a group of people in cybernetics who talk about 
being part of the systems that we are engineering and observing. It has a term which is second order cybernetics, but anyone that fell into that bracket kind of said, we are also part of the things that we are building. So we put our values into them. We are in interaction with them. But then there are also a whole set of cyberneticists who are what are called first order cybernetics, who are interested in observing systems abstractly. And you can kind of, in that distinction, you kind of get at the core of, I think, the political fault line that still exists in AI today, where there are those who say, like, I'm not part of this. I just build something and it goes into the world, but like, I am not a part of that, like me and my opinions. I am just observing a system and doing something with it. And then there are those who are like, no, you know, we are connected to this we are part of what we're doing and like whole arguments vicious arguments have kind of come out of that fault line and it's a very famous one within cybernetics is are we interested in observed systems things that can be seen are we interested in how we observe systems ellen can i just ask though isn't yeah i mean a lot of a lot of what we talk about on this show has been where techs run rampant over human interests and the sort of the moral questions have been deferred to that's just what the machines do. I mean, surely by now, I don't know, you tell me, but in your field, wouldn't there be a growing trend towards acknowledging that these systems that are built by humans take on the values of the humans that build them and therefore they have to be considered in that light, don't they? Isn't, isn't that, so, aren't we going to end up in a circumstance of, of really significant trouble, particularly with AI, if we don't approach it in that way? So like I would, so cybernetics like we are, the School of Zionics is the first school to have been set up in 50 years. It's like coming back. This is not the way the broader field works. And in fact, you know, there's a whole history about why some of the early physicists and computer scientists associated with cybernetics went off and built artificial intelligence instead. Like they broke away and wouldn't invite certain people in cybernetics to the Dartmouth research workshop because they made it too complex. It was too complex and too messy. If you have to talk about humans and that there are more than one ways of approaching problems, that's too messy and we want to neaten it up. And I would say, actually, still the majority of our training in computer science and, and what drives the design of AI is not about confronting mess. It's about neatening up. You're always looking at like, how do you, uh, we, we have, it is all about abstraction necessarily, like computer science is the art of abstraction, but you're not trained to think about what that intersects with. And I feel like what we're trying to do as a school is bring that back and mm. say, you know, we're trying to return to before, AI became just obsessed with perfecting machine intelligence in and of itself, whatever that meant. Sounds like you're explaining season three of Westworld there. Look, without as much gore. So <laughs> nobody gets killed at the School of Cybernetics. But but the obvious the obvious challenge there, right? This is perhaps a really obvious point, but nonetheless, I'll make mm -hmm. it. Um, I, I mean, the, the one that people talk about a lot with automated driving is the values judgments that need to be made if a child runs out onto one side of the, the car and a 80 year old man runs out onto the other who who do you swerve to not hit 
I mean, there is a judgment call in that, right? It's not just the machine. There is some kind of decision that's, that's based on the values that would impact on that decision. So how, how can you, how can it possibly be anything other than a values judgment? No, I, I would, to, to that particular example, a cyberneticist would say, zeroing in on that very specific example that in all likelihood will happen 0.0002% of the time in our encounters in driverless vehicles means we miss the bigger issues around autonomous vehicles like should we ever be in a situation where you devolve autonomy entirely to the driver of a, to the to the vehicle itself like you only have to care about do we choose to hit a child or a grandparent if you have completely ceded any other form of control of that yeah. system and yeah, and and this context in which those two individuals are presented to you has not changed at all either so cybernetics would go like, why, why are we zooming in on this? Why are we choosing out of the kid or the granny, right? <laughs> like, why aren't we changing the infrastructure for our roads, for example? Like, if we decide, you know what, we do want some situations, we want entirely autonomous vehicles, then I will tell you, we are going to have to stop the way pedestrians use roads because people will not be able to distinguish an autom autonomous vehicle from a human-driven vehicle. And you'll start to do things like, have an entirely separate pedestrian form of infrastructure from a car. So cybernetics would go like, you have to think about the systems that are part of making this vehicle function. Because like, you never want to leave it to a value judgment. You never want to be in that situation where you've kind of ignored all of the other systems leading to that point. You want to kind of prevent that choice from ever having to be made. Yeah, there's a really interesting example there in the Uber, um, in the case of the Uber self-driving technology that they were testing and in, involved killing a pedestrian and who the company sought to hold responsible for that because they were, oh. they were testing the vehicle, they were training it on a, a road and they hired people to do that and they used to have two people in every vehicle so that the feedback could be effective and they cut costs and only had one and then, you know, used footage from the dash cam to hold the driver responsible for not for supposedly watching television on her, her phone instead of instead of looking at the road when that wasn't true. Like there's this whole social context in the development of this technology that is kind of left out if you think about it in, in very singular decisions like that, the context falls away. I did want to ask though, what do you think are the positives? Because it, it does become, obviously this messiness is critically important. Do you think it helps make decisions about things like policy in relation to AI? Because I can understand the drive of tech bros to simplify it because they like making things. I, I don't support that, but how do you frame cyber cybernetics in a more positive way then, perhaps yeah. from a policy perspective, to talk about the contribution it makes rather than just as a critic criticism of, of AI as an alternative? Yeah, product, and for example. it's something that we're really conscious of because there's like a tagline that goes around the school that we're like, so we do a lot of education programs. We have a flagship master's program that are kind of purposefully recruited in and they're all like brilliant individuals, but the whole, they spend the whole year building systems because we want to create critical doers, like conscientious doers, people who have the skills to build systems, but in more positive, holistic ways and not just learn to say everything that's wrong with what they're looking at. And a term that I quite often use when I'm talking to policymakers is, so the word cybernetics has its origins in the Greek word for steering. It means the steers person or the helms person. And if you think of a lot of the skills and frameworks that we try to teach as a school, they're to help people navigate 
more wisely with a better awareness of the conditions that surround the thing that they're trying to do. So like, you know, if you want to, uh, I think Peter earlier in the conversation mentioned about like developing a tool to identify women at risk of domestic violence, which is like a really valid and important objective for a service. And what we try and teach is like, well, how do you try and make decisions in the design of that tool effectively? Like, how do you think about not just how do you perfect your service, but like, how do you think about the uh, effect it will have on its users? Not because the end goal is don't do it. It's like, so that you can keep course correcting, just like someone on their ship, like a captain still is trying to get from A to B but they want to be mindful of weather conditions. They want to be mindful of crew harmony to avoid mutiny. They want to be mindful of the amount of food that they've got. Kind of what we try and teach is how do you juggle lots of considerations, but still in pursuit of designing technical systems that have a real impact on the world. So we just had our graduation of our third cohort, for example, and they just were, A, they're an incredible bunch of very diverse people, men, women, multiple ethnicities, different backgrounds. But to hear them talk about their experience, just so hopefully and optimistically, a different way of designing technologies, the goal is more sustainable, safer, responsible systems. So the way you describe it, it feels like we should all be cyberneticists in that you probably you're, basically, are. you're basically talking about having long-term objectives, having an understanding of all the points of friction, and then providing a system to, to meet your objectives. Now, the other bit I want to get before we go, you've actually built a game as well around I some did. of these issues. Dart, well, Dartopolis. Well, this was before cybernetics and they told uh-huh. me to run and grab it before so you could all see it. And this was about open data, but in a way it's like very cybernetics because it's all about the infrastructure and the competing objectives and motivations of different people associated with building data services. Um, so you play this game where you are both trying to build tools and services whilst also encountering people with different motivation. You have an industry partner who just wants to get the most data. You've got a (laughs) um, public servant who wants to ensure that some data is accessible for public benefit and they want certain kinds of products to be built. So they want things that are good for citizens to be built. So you've got all these competing objectives, but you're still trying to build data services with it. So, so you're not just accumulating capital to buy a hotel on. You could still try and win that way. There's one card (laughs) that that's their goal. And sometimes they do win, but they're all trying to do it differently. We got to talk about Dartopolis burning platforms game party. The thing that's really (laughs) tragic about it is uh, it was created just before Trump got elected and it's set in a fictional town called Sheridan with a mayor Brump. And we thought we were being so funny at the time, creating all of these crazy Mayor Brump stories affecting the town of Sheridan. And then he became president of the United States and we felt bad. Hey, hey, thanks for the conversation. That was absolutely brilliant. I actually, I said earlier that you'd made me feel dumber and now you've made me feel smarter all in the one half hour so that's pretty pretty awesome <laughs> anything we need to know i know you're still not technically back on deck with digital rights watch lizzie but is there anything the room needs to know upcoming events or anything we are having a launch of a report soon actually we've been doing this long-term series of rebalance in the internet economy and uh, we're going to launch a report about that so we've done a few town halls with creators and um activists online and how we could 
rebalance the internet economy, economy to make it work for them. We'll let you know when that launches, but it's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Terrific. And behind the scenes, we're all doing some work around privacy law reviews as well. So we'll probably share that with the group over the next few weeks as well. But that's all, all really exciting. Thanks, everyone. Um, what a terrific discussion. Um, great to see you back, Lizzie. All the best, Ellen. And um, yeah, thanks a lot, Dan, as well. Thank you Cheers, for having everyone. me. Thanks, folks. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live at a virtual town hall on June 10. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.